Amen. Greg, thank you very much for leading us this morning. I hope you're encouraged by that. Um, hey, I do want to add my thank you or my congratulations and best wishes to fathers out there. Um, we also want to acknowledge it's a complicated day, isn't it, um, for many of you. And well, again, welcome to those who are watching online. But for some of you, you don't have a great father story. And I just want you to know you're seen in this space. Some of you have a missing dad or one that you've never known. Um, some of you have an abusive dad. Some of you um, have a story in which things have just not gone the way that you wish they would. Um, and so we just want you to know you're loved and seen in the story that you are on and that I believe your Heavenly Father sees you as well. For, for others, you have a better father story. Um, and maybe like mine, you have some memories of what your life was like early with your dad. And I remember early on, I tried to emulate my dad and model some behavior of his in some very important ways. I learned which was the best brand of peanut butter from my dad. We learned in Barbados, and I learned that my dad liked Peter Pan peanut butter. Does anyone prefer Peter Pan peanut butter? All right. Uh, I see one person. Andrea, thank you. It's an honor to be with you, just you, this morning. The rest of you, we have some work to do with you in that discipleship area around peanut butter. And I didn't know any better, and so I thought, sure, why not? Let's do, let's do Peter Pan peanut butter. But then I also learned that he liked crunchy peanut butter. Do I have any crunchy peanut butter people in the house? Mm, just a few. Yeah, okay. And you know what? I wanted to like it, <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> but I wanted to do things that I found my dad liked to do. And it just is the way it is. And here's one of the things as I reflect back on my life now that I'm a, just a hair older than when I was five, is that I realize that throughout my life, there's been a lot of people throughout the course of my life that I have tried to please in one way or another. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but I want to encourage you to think about this. And I want to begin with this question of if you could make a list of all the people in your life that you have ever tried to please, who would be on that list. Now, since I got a head start, I decided that I would do that, and I want to walk through a non-scientific, personal, real quick run of the people in my life that over the course of years I've tried to please. Sometimes for me, and maybe for you, it's been a parent or guardian. I've told you already that I wanted to model peanut butter, my dad's peanut butter affection. I also realized that along the way that I have a sibling that I wanted to please. My older sister was, especially when we were younger, she could always do something sooner than me, right? She could always run sooner than me. She could always move to the next level of, of reading and, and engagement better than me. And so there's always this, I want to please her because she seems cooler than me. Now she's clearly not cooler than me, but at the time... She seemed that way. Friends are also in this category for me, and that's a, almost a no-brainer. I remember when I was in youth group here in the States that we decided for some reason to toilet paper our youth pastor's house, which I would recommend as a youth activity. Just don't tell the student pastor. But it wasn't something that I wanted to do necessarily on my own, but I'm like, these people want to do that, and I want to please them, and so it would be weird if I didn't do that. And so I just kind of, I remember, I just remember intrinsically that feeling, and it wasn't a, a terrible thing, but I just remember thinking, like on my own, and of course it's boring, boring, I suppose, to toilet paper someone's house on your own. I've never done it. But I wanted to please my friends, and so I went along and did it. My parents told me I had to go clean it up the next day, which was not nearly as much fun as doing it the night before, by the way. Also in the course of my life, and maybe in yours, I've had a few people in these categories of teachers, coaches, instructors, who I've wanted to please, wanted to do what they asked, the way they wanted it, in the, in the means in which they wanted it. Maybe for you, and it's been a boy or a girlfriend, and maybe it's a spouse for you as well, that um, wanting to, to please the girl or the guy, and certainly your, your husband or your wife. I remember when Jen and I were dating, I would stay at her house way later than I would on my own because I wanted to please her, and I wanted 
the time with her as well. But there are things that you do that you try to please these people. There's another category as you look into work, and this is my story too, maybe yours. There's a boss, there's business partners, there's employees, there's customers and clients that you have to look around and say, what does my boss really want? And what do my business partners really want? And what do the employees who are working with me really want? And then there's customers and clients who are complaining about this and wishing this and hoping for that. You've got to please these people as well. And maybe for you, it's also extended family. This could go on for a long time, right? I remember when Jen and I just got engaged, we were uh, uh, around 21, 22 at the time, something like that. Um, so clearly we knew everything we needed to know to get married. And one of my um, extended family members basically, and I still remember to this day, when we called and told her we got engaged, <laughs> she's like, do you realize how young you are? Like, you're too young to get married. And I remember the critique coming. I'm like, no, I have no idea how old I am. Can you tell me again how old I am? Of course I know how old I am. But her critique around this was like, you're not ready yet to get married. And I still remember that, you know, to this day. And my, my grandma had expectations. And I remember the, the weight of her opinion was strong in our family. Maybe for you, it's neighbors. You know, they got to mow the lawn, then you got to mow the lawn, right? I mean, that's just the way it works in, in the world, right? Maybe also it's yourself your version of what you think your future should be, and maybe for some of you who are people of faith, and maybe it's God. Whatever you define, however you see this, maybe you also are trying to please God. And we can look at this, we can add a lot of things. I haven't even put pastors up here. Some of you try to please pastors or youth pastors. Some of you try to please your doctor, or don't. And they say, you know, here's how you need to change your diet. Well, whatever. Or, okay, I need to do that. Is there any, is there any doubt, when we look at all these people up here, why some of us get very confused as to what decisions we should make with our lives. Is there any doubt why people give so many voices in their heads that creates such stress and anxiety around what should I actually do with my future? How should my present change in order to be a more faithful follower of Christ, if that's who you identify as, as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, your version of Christ is also filtered through how your parents raised you or didn't raise you. It's filtered through your friends and your pastors and your coaches and teachers. It's filtered through your experience of abuse or not abuse, of neglect or whatever. And it's filtered through all of these things and all these voices in your head. And the question becomes, who are you actually trying to please? And what I want to do this morning with you is I just want to encourage you, almost plead with you a little bit for this simple uh, request, and then I want to go to the scriptures with you. And I, I want you this morning simply to, to please consider who you're pleasing. To please consider this morning, in the time that we have, please consider who you're pleasing in an ultimate way. In, in a small way, it's okay to please a lot of little people. You know, I enjoy pleasing my wife. I enjoy pleasing my kids. I enjoy doing things that are pleasing to you who are looking at me right here or who are online. I enjoy that. Those are great to do, and those are honoring things, but I'm talking about in an ultimate way. Who is it, truthfully, that your life is oriented toward pleasing, and how can I even know that? So this morning, in our series called Stronger, we're going to look at a man who guides us on this journey toward ultimately who it is that he pleases, and what he does in, the, in a dialogue and exchange is so profound to me that it is something that I wanted to raise up, show to you, let you see and engage, and then consider around your life around this question, who is it that you are pleasing? So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If you don't own a Bible, there's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew, or in pew the pewish, the rowish, the chair is near you, around you. We would love to give them to you if you don't own a Bible, by the way. That's our gift to you this morning. You can also turn in your, on your phone or on your app, whatever, to the U version, open that up. And uh, Nehemiah 
there's a book in the Old Testament that's the first um, half of your Bible. If you find it like midway through, you find the Psalms and then just back up a, a couple uh, pages probably and you'll find um, Nehemiah depending upon where you are. All right, so with Nehemiah, we're beginning at chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be at verse 10 to begin. And just by way of some context, Nehemiah is this... Um, um, he's a cupbearer to the king. He's a, a, a leader in the country at the time, and he's wanting to go back to his home of Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall. And he's just gotten permission to go back, and the king has given him uh, resources to go and freedom of time to go. We learn later in chapter 5, he's given him about 12 years to accomplish the task. And so now we pick it up in chapter 2 and verse 10 when he's um, essentially arriving into Jerusalem. And so verse 10 when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, that this is the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites, which makes a lot of sense. Now, before we go any further, I want to tell you that I'm going to read this in about three different sections. The first section is going to be the most verses. I will comment the least on the next several verses. And then I'm going to comment the most on the last two verses that we read this morning. And so we see in verse 11 then, when he says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on, meaning he was on either a donkey, most likely a horse of some kind, um, mounted up on it, riding around basically at night, and the reason for this is that no one could see what he was doing. No one really knew the plan yet. I believe that Nehemiah was probably afraid of spies, um, of information leaking out, and having his plans shut down before they really had a chance to get started. Verse 13, he says, By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, which I assume are on the wrong side of the tracks. I don't know. Would you like to live in the Dungate side of the city? I don't know if I would. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward what sounds like the nicer part of town, toward the fountain gate in the king's pool. Isn't that nice? But there was not enough room for my mount to get through. And so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. That's really insightful. The officials there in Jerusalem didn't know what was going on. Because as yet I had not said anything, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others. Look at how this finishes. Who would be doing the work? Look at Nehemiah's assumption. That that the Jews, the common folk, if you will, all the Jews, and the priests who are in charge of the spiritual oversight, and the nobles and officials who kind of governed and ruled governmentally, they're all going to be doing the work. <laughs> I mean, every single one of them is going to be doing the work. I just didn't tell them yet what we're doing, but don't worry. They're all going to be doing this work. And then he calls them together, and I assume verse 17 kind of begins the next day or the day after. I'm not sure when it begins, but verse 17, we're picture, picturing now a gathering where he is speaking to the people in Jerusalem. Verse 17, I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Verse 17, by the way, and verse 18, if you are a leader of an organization or if you're a leader who wants to build a small business or create a movement or create initiative and movement within any people. Verse 17 and 18 is a powerful example of how to do this well. I'm going to skip over it real quick because I want to go further into the text, but I'm going to read it but I just want to give that to you and say there's so much here that he does. It's so great 
He says in verse 17, you see the trouble that we are in? Number one, as a leader, he identifies personally with that trouble, right? He says, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. He's, he's um, establishing reality. Someone has said, get the facts or the facts will get you. He's just telling them, this is what's happening here. This is the scenario. This is reality. You must have a firm grasp of reality. And then he invites and doesn't demand action. He says, come, come, let us together rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Not a demand, not a strength, but just I'm going to do it with you. I want to invite you to this future. And then here's the result. Here's why you should do it. Here's the win. You will no longer, we will no longer be in disgrace. When he uses that word disgrace, it's not just personal disgrace, but it's also, it extends to God because the God of the Israelites was in disgrace because the the city was in disgrace. And so he's essentially saying, you as a people will no longer be in disgrace and our God will no longer be in disgrace. This is the final win. So this approach, by the way, in verse 17, if you're looking to start, move, or whatever, anything, this is a very helpful thing. But it's not the purpose of what I'm, where I'm going with the text this morning. He also says in verse 18, he says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. That's so helpful. That it's not just me, he's saying, He's like, I want you to know that God himself has been gracious to me, and by the way, all the things around me here, all the resources that you see that have accompanied me this morning or today to this thing, the king has been gracious to me, which is great. And so they replied at the end of verse 18 with what is a very normal reaction at this point, hey, but also a big moment, let us start rebuilding. You can almost see this swell of, of enthusiasm in the city of Jerusalem, like, this is good, and this is the first movement of the text this morning. Let us start rebuilding. The first time they're identifying verbally, like, we're going to do this together. You've established reality. You've drawn us to something good. You've shown us a future. You've allowed us to see what the win could be. Let's do it. We trust you. God's with you. The king's with us. You're with us. Let's do it. That's great. So they began this good work. And then the second part of our text this morning is what happens whenever a leader steps up to say something. No matter who they are, Whenever a leader, and you may have heard me talk about the law of the whale in leadership before, but the law of the whale in leadership, if you haven't or don't remember that, is this, that when you rise to the surface and blow, you will be harpooned, okay? That's the law of the whale in leadership. And that says whenever you want to go somewhere and you're clear about it and you identify it, then you're essentially right, putting a mark on your back and saying, hey, everybody, you can critique me if it doesn't go right, or you can critique me even if you think it differently. You can, whatever way, but you're rising to the surface and saying, this is where we should go. And this is exactly what happens to Nehemiah. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. Of course they did, because they didn't want Jerusalem rebuilt. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Great question. Simple question, of course, because all that these guys knew was that the previous decree from this same king, and we saw this last week, this same king, just a, year, a few years prior, had told the people who were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem to stop rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And now, Nehemiah comes and he's like, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. To which then these guys are like, this is not okay. Like, you're rebelling against the king. What are you, crazy? I mean, they mocked and ridiculed. Now, I don't know what you would say in that situation, but my instinctive reaction would not be difficult because his, this question is, are you rebelling against the king? Here's what I would say. I would answer his question. I am not rebelling against the king. That's your question, right? I'm not rebelling against the king. In fact, I have the king's authority. I have the king's 
blessing. I have the king's permission to be here. That's what I would say. That's your question. Am I rebelling against king? The answer is no. I have his approval. Nehemiah doesn't even address the king. His response goes deeper quickly. Look at verse 20. I answered their problem. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Wait a minute, Nehemiah. They didn't ask about God. They asked if you have the king's permission. And you're telling them, the God of heaven will give us success. And he goes on, he says, we his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And as I read this in preparation for this morning, over and over it struck me, and I didn't know what exactly to do with it, with the reality that Nehemiah doesn't address their main concern that you don't have the king's permission to be here. If you were caught in the hallway of your elementary school without a pass from your teacher, or if a teacher walked by and said, can you show me that you have the right to be here? If you can produce a, what we used to have at least, is a hall pass, then you're good. If you don't have the permission, you're not good. In a sense, that's what they're saying to Nehemiah. Show us your, you don't have the right to be doing this. But Nehemiah skips it. And I've wondered as I process this, why would he do that? Because the easy answer is simply to say, listen, did you guys not see the decree? I have it written down here. I brought it with me. This is why his military is here. This is why the cedars from Lebanon are here. This is why we have the resources we have, because the king has given us permission. Any other questions? He skips it. And I thought, well, maybe that's an oversight. Maybe he forgot that the king gave him permission. Like, clearly not. But what does it tell me that his immediate reaction is to go beyond the king and to say the God of heaven is going to give us success. And here's what I think. I think that Nehemiah knew and acted in what I think is an incredible gift for those who call themselves Christians. For those who, the Christian faith sends, the message of Christianity says this, that there is, and you've, some of you have heard me say this before, that in life, there is not just created meaning, but discovered meaning. <laughs> that when we discover that the God of the universe has created us and given us purpose and value, when we attach to that, we do not need to attach to created meaning. Created meaning is what the king would create. The king creates the meaning a few years ago. He creates reality that says you're not allowed to rebuild the wall. That is created value. But then later the king changes his mind. You can now rebuild the wall, to which now we're in that. Nehemiah knows the heart of the king and the heart of all the people in this world can shift and change. I'm not going to anchor my life to created meaning. I'm going to anchor my value to a deeper meaning. I'm going to discover and live in the discovered meaning of God, that God will grant us success, which is why the king changed his mind to begin with. I'm not here because of the king's decree. Nehemiah knows that. Nehemiah knows it doesn't matter if he shows him the king's decree or not. What's behind the king's decree and what Nehemiah is anchored to is not created meaning, but discovered meaning. He has discovered that God wants to bring his people back. That was part of God's covenant with Moses, that if people are scattered to the far ends of the earth, I will bring them back if they will repent and turn to me. And Nehemiah is tapped into discovering the meaning of God. Secondly, Nehemiah is also acting in a way that I'm going to say represents what a psychologist named Dr. Murray uh, Bowen 
coined a number of years ago called self-differentiation. Dr. Bowen put this in um, family systems terms and see if you can relate to this, but Bowen said years ago that self-differentiation means being able to have different opinions and values than your family members, but being able to stay emotionally connected to them. Can you imagine being able to do that? Being able to, within your family system, and Bowen was a family system therapist, basically, that you can have different opinions but still be emotionally connected to them. That's hard to imagine. Here's what Peter Scazzaro writes about differentiation when it comes to our own spiritual life. He puts it this way, that differentiation is a person's capacity to define his or her own life goals and values apart from the pressures of those around them. So what Nehemiah is expressing here is this pressure. He's experiencing this pressure from these critics in this moment where people are ready to start rebuilding and the critics want him to stop. How should he respond? And what he knows intrinsically is there are values, there are life goals, if you will, that allow me to function and have clarity beyond the pressures of what I experience around me. I love the way Scazzaro goes on to talk about this. He says, the differentiation means that you know how to hold on to who you are and who you are not, regardless of your circumstances. Your level of differentiation is determined by how well you're able to affirm your values and goals apart from the pressures around you, meaning you're able to be separate, while remaining close to people important to you, meaning you can be together. You can make healthy choices before God without being controlled by the approval or disapproval of others. And Scazzaro goes on to write this. Differentiation is sometimes uncomfortable, but tolerating discomfort is foundational to maturing and growth. Can you imagine the discomfort of Nehemiah in this space? Like, I'm going to tell you right now, God has given us success. And the pressure and the weight of the critic is coming on him, and the questions will come later on, as we'll see as the text unfolds, that people will doubt his leadership. They're going to doubt his ability to fight through the enemies. They're going to doubt his ability to lead through this moment. But differentiation, he says, is sometimes uncomfortable, but tolerating discomfort is foundational to maturing and growth. And then he finishes it this way, saying this, that the good news is that every small step of differentiation that we take is actually a giant step toward making our lives a gift to the world. Every small step we take toward clarity around our own values and goals, despite the pressures around us, while we are able to stay emotionally connected to the people who may disagree with us, is a small step toward making our lives a gift to the world. For some of us, and I'm included in this, for some of us, when we feel discomfort, because people would want us to alter our plans, or move in another direction, or not go where we think God would have us to go. When we feel the pressure or discomfort from our family, or from our friends, or from our boss, or our coworkers, or our friends at school, whatever it might be, when we feel that discomfort, we can often think intrinsically we're wrong. <laughs> Maybe I should adjust, because when I ask the question, who am I trying to please, it gets very complicated. Because I don't like, and maybe you don't like, discomfort, do you? I know I don't. In fact, I, I can't tell you how many times, as a leader, I, it has been clear to me that I have disappointed so many people over the years. And you, if you're a leader, you have that same story too. The people's expectations are impossible to target and impossible to hit. 
In fact, it was said to me that, one, that way very clearly just a few years ago. We made a decision at the church that someone didn't agree with, and after church, someone came up to me and said, I have never been more disappointed in you than I am right now over the decision that we made. Now, what did I want to do? I wanted to please her, right? Because I don't like the pressure of that. I don't like the discomfort of that. I don't like the anxiety that brings. I don't like when, when relationships have that dynamic of, oh, like they're upset. Oh. And I go over my list that I had at the beginning. Who am I trying to please? And when Nehemiah stands there and the critic says, you're doing something wrong, what are you, a, a moron? Have you thought this through? You think you're going to rebuild this massive wall with these people here who have been in poverty for a generation or two? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with the rest of you who think you can do this? When you feel that pressure, Nehemiah taps into something that's discovered, not created. And in his differentiated self, if you will, says, you know what? I feel your pressure. I feel the weight of it. And as much as I don't like to disappoint you, I just want you to know God is going to give us success. God is going to give us success. And every step that you make and that I make toward differentiation, being able to be clear on our values and goals and being tied into the purpose of God, will start to make the world a better place for you and for me. So I ask the question, how does Nehemiah get to this point where he can stand there and so quickly say, you know what, it isn't about the king, it is about God. I love what he says next, because I think two more things are true. The second thing that's true is how he talks about and understands himself. Look at verse 20. After he says, the God of heaven will give us success, he says, we his servants will start rebuilding. Don't run by this too quickly. Nehemiah calls himself and the people with him servants. I do not know how you define your relationship with God or how you talk about how you're related to God. But here's what Nehemiah says. He says, I'm a servant of God. And here's what I know, and here's what I think you know, that basically whoever or whatever I'm trying to please becomes my master. So whoever or whatever I'm trying to please becomes my master. And so if it's the hidden expectations of people, now I'm a slave to changing expectations and a shifting tide. If it's money, if it's power, if it's reputation, that becomes my master, and I think we know that. And the question becomes, who am I serving? And Nehemiah is very clear. He just identifies himself. He says, I'm a servant of God. And so servants do the will of their master, and God's desire is that his people be brought back together. And I'm rediscovering that now, and we're leading into success. And secondly, then, he also engages them with truth. Look at what he says there. But as for you, he says, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is so important, what he does there. He's saying, not just, he's not reacting to them emotionally. He's not pushing back on their foolishness. He's not pushing back on what was their, their own abuse of the people in Jerusalem for years as, as their enemies. He's simply, he's simply searching for and identifying what is true. And the engagement of truth, he's saying, you simply don't have a right to this. Just like when I talked with uh, my family member on the phone, and they were like, are you sure you're getting married at the right time? Like, I think you're too young. The truth is, they have no claim to that land. Right? They have no claim to that land. It would be as foolish as you going over to your neighbor's house and saying, I think that the flowers you are planting are ugly. They don't match your siding. You have no, no claim or right to their land. 
right? And, and this is the same thing that Nehemiah is saying, let me just be clear and let me engage with truth on you. What you're doing is immaterial. Your opinion of our movement and our decision here doesn't matter because you have no claim to this land. And for some of us, we have allowed people in our minds and our hearts to have claim on something that we should never have allowed them to have because we're not clear who we're trying to please. We're not sure who we are serving in our lives. So I have a couple questions for us. Because my interest for you, and I think your interest for you as well, is your future impact. What will the rest of your life and your energies from here forward bring for you and your family, your spouse, your children, your business, your community? I want you to be as impactful as you can be as men and women in the world in which we live. And a big part of that is being able to answer the question, who am I living for or who or what am I actually really seriously trying to please? And so I want to encourage you to ask a couple questions. And the first is this question that I've been asking the whole morning. And that is this, who am I trying to please? Maybe you need to, like I did, write a list down. And you might have a list that might just be one or two or three people. And you know you have never been able to get over that voice in your head in the past of a family member, a previous, an ex, a previous version of yourself who's reminding you of your failures and shame in the past. Maybe a former pastor or whatever who's said things or done things that have not been helpful and you've had a struggle getting over that or whatever it might be. Who are you trying to please? Kids, friends, siblings. Who are you trying to please? For real, not, not in day by day, but I mean ultimately. Ultimately, who... Who is your master? Which is why I want to ask this next, next question as well. I want to encourage you to ask three questions. Who am I trying to please? How do I see myself in relationship to God? How do you talk about yourself and see yourself in relationship to God? Nehemiah is very clear. He sees himself as a servant. He says, I'm a servant of God. And people who are servants just do the will of their master. And there's great clarity and alignment with that. And so I want to encourage you to ask this question. How do I see myself as I go about my Monday, right? I'm not just an employee, I'm not just the boss, I'm not just a dad or a mom or a, a student or a coworker. If I'm a servant of God, and there's a God that came to redeem me through his son Jesus Christ, how do I see myself in a relationship today that I may discover the eternal purposes of God in my day to day that I can serve him well? Third question is this. How does truth help me navigate the situation that I'm in? How does truth Help me navigate the situation we're in. I know and you know that there are a variety of ways that people try to get to truth, and truth is under um, attack in this moment in our life like maybe no other that I have experienced. Um, and I do believe there are better and worse versions of truth that we can adhere to. And I want to encourage you to pursue the most robust and clear versions of truth, not just persuasion, not just information, the truth that you can find. Because I believe that Christian faith is anchored not just to ideas, not just to principles, but to truth. Truth that should be sought after and found and that our conversations with each other are not just around rhetoric, but our conversations with each other are buoyed and strengthened by an increasing ability to speak truth with and to one another, to clarify what is actually going on right now and right here. So I want to encourage you in this way. And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't finish this way. 
Because I think the Christian faith is an incredible gift to us in this moment. I think the Christian faith does a couple things, but the Christian faith invites all to discover a deeper purpose for life. So if you are trying to process where you're at in your Christian faith, or if you are new to the faith, young to the faith, or even if you said, I've been here for a long time, but I've never thought about this before, the Christian faith invites you not just to create meaning, not just to create a future where you're successful in someone's eyes, where you're going to have to please someone's version of a future self. The Christian faith invites you to discover God and God's purpose for your life which is found in knowing and ultimately pleasing a loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son for everyone. The Christian faith says that there is a loving Heavenly Father who saw you, created you, made you, gives purpose to you, gives value to you. And as your life is aligned as a servant of His, with Him, toward Him, through Jesus Christ, you find and discover value not just in your future iteration of yourself, not just in your future success, but in who you're anchored to and in knowing and pleasing, ultimately, this loving Heavenly Father. Now, I will say, on my worst days, and I don't know about you, on my worst days, and I have too many of them that I would prefer to have, that opening list I made, some days, I'll say, I don't care about anybody. I don't care about anybody else. I'm tired of it all. I'm just going to please myself. Now, I rarely verbalize it because that sounds really bad. But I act like that sometimes. Which actually will work as long as you're never wrong and you have an answer to what to do with death. And if you can do those two things, then I would encourage you to live for yourself. But if you can't, then I want to encourage you to rethink a little bit. If I can't be totally trusted because I have made wrong decisions, and if I don't have an answer for what to do with death, then maybe there is someone I need to work on getting to know who can handle the problem of death and who can align me with truth so that my life is aligned with a loving Heavenly Father whose purpose is to bring the redeeming love of God through Jesus Christ, that all will come to know him, so that your days are full of the success of God as a servant of his. That's what I think the Christian faith can bring to you, and I hope it brings to me. Next week, part six, or seven, I'm not sure what we're on. The next part of Stronger what to do with fear and when that creeps into us. I look forward to that conversation next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to stop for a moment in Nehemiah and revisit this idea of purpose, tying into a discovered purpose of God. To revisit that we are made for more than just ourselves and our own creation of our future story here, but that like Nehemiah, who quickly said, this is for God. The reason I'm here is for God and his success. The reason that we're doing this is I'm a servant of his. And here's what's true about your critique. It doesn't hold water because it doesn't matter here. It's just not true. To be able to differentiate ourselves from the critiques of our friends sometimes, from the 
pressure that our family puts under us that's undue, that's not appropriate, from a boss or a business partner who wants us to go in a direction that simply isn't honoring to what we know to be true about the heart of our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to differentiate ourselves in our day-to-day that we can with courage come back to remind ourselves that we are servants of yours, that we engage truth, that our heart is to serve with purpose in the day to day, despite the critiques and obstacles that come. So I pray that you give us courage to ask the question, who am I really trying to please? and give us courage to chase down that answer. Pray this in Jesus' name.